Hi, this is Tom Compton. You're listening to WHTT Speaks Out. Each week, Chuck Carlson and members of We Hold These Truths look into events that are, for the most part, ignored or overlooked by the mainstream media. And we analyze these events. Ready, set, let the sparks fly. In today's WHTT Speaks Out, our topic is entitled A Culture of Life Versus a Death trained society. And this podcast is about the continuing genocide in Gaza. There's a truce as we speak right now that will last another day and we don't know exactly what will happen. But we're going to step back and look at the big picture and discuss a couple points about this. And the first one is the Israeli plan and tent of what they are doing. What is the big picture there? And then we're going to talk about the Gaza rocket myth. And it's hidden by the U.S. media. So many people, that's the first reaction. When I talked to a grandmother, we did a podcast not too long ago about this, in church and Sunday school, she asked me what I did over the weekend, and I said, well, I was at a rally to support the Palestinians because of the bombing in Gaza. The first words up her mouth was, but what about all those rockets that the Hamas launches? So it's, it's an automatic response that part of this conditioning that we see by our media, and we want to discuss that. So This is part, actually, of Chuck's groundbreaking article entitled Israel's Ongoing Genocide, Ethnic Cleansing of Gaza. And we'll link this to the story. I'd like to turn this over to Chuck, who wrote the article to start our discussion. Chuck? Okay. uh, Thank you, Tom. And uh, glad to be with you and to have our friends on with us uh, to make comments. Tonight, uh, we're going to be talking about two issues. The first one is the general issue that is, of course, not understood by very many people, and that is that Israel does actually have a plan for systematic genocide and ethnic cleansing uh, of the Gaza Strip. And this plan is well known in Israel and is generally accepted by the general population there. And the reason we know that it's generally accepted is that the, the people who proposed the idea of actually eliminating all Palestinians are very prominent Knesset members. That's their addition of their parliament there. And a couple of them have high positions where they've been appointed uh, by Benjamin Netanyahu, who is uh, the man who's carrying out the war. He's the prime minister. And uh, so we have written an addition to the story. We're not going to cover the whole addition tonight, but we want to discuss just a, a couple of things about this because very few people uh, really understand that Israel is serious when they talk about genocide and ethnic cleansing. They think that we're going to have a little attack on Gaza that's going to last a few days. Maybe it will get a little out of hand and they'll kill two or 3,000 people, but when it's over, uh, they'll go back uh, where they came from and the, somehow the Gazans, Palestinians, will go back to living like they somehow did before. Israel's plan and intent 
is laid out in detail in a paper by Moshe Fieglin, who is the vice speaker of the parliament of Knesset. They only have one branch, so they don't have two like we do. So he's uh, in a very high position. He's just been appointed to a foreign affairs committee by none other than Benjamin Netanyahu. And he calls his plan, my final solution to the Gaza problem. And uh, when you go to our website, you'll be able to click on that and actually read from it. It's extremely shocking. There's a section of it that talks, it's carried out in seven parts. And what it essentially says in the end is that uh, those people who are uh, not killed uh, will be invited to leave and allowed to leave. And uh, one of the sections of his plan says that they will eliminate all armed opposition. So that explains why in this recent foray into Gaza uh, by the Israelis, they did not take one prisoner. They killed, uh, was it uh, 2,000, Tom? Roughly 2,000. It's, it's, it's about 2,000, yeah. It'll be over 2,000 by the time some of the unfortunate wounded don't make it. So it's right at 2,000, and, and the number of wounded about 10,000, and no prisoners. Now, I think we've all grown up with the idea that in warfare you take prisoners when you can, and you only kill people when you can't. But isn't it curious that Israel has gone from one end of Gaza to the other through all of these tunnels and thought to have killed about a thousand people who have resisted and have not taken one prisoner. So this is the plan that uh, we see. And uh, of course, we don't know if they're carrying out the exact plan that uh, Moshe Fieglin laid out, but uh, we do know there is such a plan. Excuse me, Chuck. I think that number of combatants on the Hamas side was lower than that because the statistics coming in say that it's over 75% civilian casualties. So that number has to be much smaller than 1,000 that have actually been killed in the clashes in this quote-unquote war. Yes. You know, the average age of people in Gaza is about 17 years. So they're very young, and that's why so many children are killed. They have a lot of children. But as far as being military and civilian, of course, you have a clear-cut military uh, in Israel. But in Gaza, you don't have a military. Uh, Hamas does not have an army. And so the people that are Hamas activists, uh, probably they wear about what they wear at home. Uh, So who is not a civilian in Gaza is uh, is hard to know. Israel has very exhaustive lists of everyone who they think is important. If you live in Gaza, even though there are a lot of people there, uh, Israel has a lot of spies inside Gaza, and they keep very close track, and they know who all the leadership they're looking for are. And uh, in fact, some of Hamas leadership stays outside of Gaza and doesn't is not there at all. So we would encourage people to understand how clearly Israel has pointed out this pattern of ethnic cleansing. And some of the other Knesset members and other leading politicians have come out with their own view of how the genocide should be carried out. And one of the things that has been talked about is complete destruction of all uh, structure needed to live. 
In other words, uh, the destruction of the water, the destruction of the sewage systems, the destruction of the electrical plant, which was already done. And, of course, Israel has bombed eight UN schools that were caring for people who uh, had left their homes. There have been uh, four or 5,000 homes destroyed and estimated at least 300,000 people homeless. So this Fieglin plan calls for basically destruction of the infrastructure that people need to live so that when the war is over, let's say, call it over, there won't be a place to actually live in Gaza this time. Any thoughts or comments from others? Uh, this is Craig. Looking at Moshe's article, number seven on sovereignty, I think is very interesting. He says, uh, Gaza is part of our land and we will remain there forever. That's their motivation to even be going in there. I mean, it's, it's their land. It was given to them 4,000 years ago, even though the people are probably uh, ethnic Europeans uh, and the people that have lived there have been there for hundreds and hundreds of years. So, But the, the whole notion is that it's their land and they're going to take it back. Right, right. And the part about people leaving, I think that's number six. Fieglin uh, suggests that they can, uh, they can go into the Gazan desert. He, he basically ha- has no suggestion where people are going to be driven to. It's just they can go wherever they can go, and it's none of our concern. Let them go where they want, in other words. Yes. Because Egypt controls the Gazan Desert, and Egypt is not friendly toward anyone coming in. At the present time, Egypt is uh, pretty much siding with the Israelis. Anything else? Hello, this is William. This plan, of course, is, is not anything new or recent. Uh, this was the plan from day one when they went into the land. Actually, before they went into the land, it was their intention to take the entire land. And that's been, you know, from the very beginning. I think the propaganda, if you please, about the two-state solution, et cetera, and the stalls in so-called peace talks were just that. They were stalls to give them the opportunity to continue to establish themselves so they could get to a point such as where they are today. Absolutely right. Uh, And the big difference uh, that's taken place between the Israel of today and the Israel of 1948 is that today you have a pretty well-established culture. Back then it was run by bands of thugs, basically, with well-known names. And at that time there were 750,000 Arabs who were displaced from villages all over the Israel-occupied territory, which at that time was part of it was granted to them by this United Nations partitioning plan. But uh, they simply drove out the indigenous population by the exact method that they're doing in Gaza right now. It was a matter of killing uh, until the rest became so frightened that they would leave carrying what they could in their heads and they would go as far as they could. So that's already happened in Israel. And uh, William, I would submit to you that one of the big differences today is that these plans today are right out in the open, whereas back in 1948, uh, what uh, was being done by the Stearns Gang and, uh, and other basically uh, vigilante organizations with armaments and guns was not known to the world and was not published as a, as a uh, plan. Uh, the United Nations Agreement 
that was uh, offered said, of course, that the indigenous people would have a right to stay in their property. And the uh, original Balfour Agreement clearly stated that Israel was uh, going to be encouraged to have a homeland there so long as they did not disturb the rights and privileges of the indigenous people who lived there. So in those days, probably the uh, European settlers were coming would have been, some of them were quite horrified as what, to what happened to the Arabs when they came there, and some of them refused to take homes that were given to them that had been taken away from Arabs. We know of Jewish settlers who would not accept the land given them that had been stolen from someone else. But today, uh, the difference we're so concerned about is that these politicians are able to talk about this right out in the open, and, and that leads to uh, the discussion of the notion of a death culture, which our paper covers in some detail. And what we've said in it is that through the three generations that have now lived in Israel, each one serving in the military, and that includes the women, there has been created a, such a callous society that I termed it in my paper rather aggressively, a culture of death. And uh, in that paper, we refer to Israel's abortion practices. And uh, it's pointed out, and we've written other papers about this in the past, that Israel's abortion rate is, uh, is fantastically high, and that Israel has a birth rate of, a, in, in Tel Aviv, the, the rate is 1.2 children per family. That may be the lowest birth rate anywhere in the world. I'm not sure if there's a lower one anyplace else. When you compare that to the Palestinian society, the average birth rate is 5.7 children per woman in Gaza. So in my paper, I talk about an experience I had in Gaza where I uh, just stopped at a construction site on a, on a Saturday morning, uh, and one of the guys was acting as a watchman over it. There was no work going on, and not much construction then. And uh, I stopped and talked to these two guys that were there. One of them was, uh, uh, was just visiting. And uh, we got to talking about family matters, and I asked them about abortion in Gaza, and they didn't know what I was talking about. They really didn't, un they didn't comprehend it. And so I pressed the details and told them a little about the United States, and I was involved in pro-life activity at the time. And they were horrified. They didn't believe anybody in Gaza ever had done that. And then one, the older man told me that he had eight children, and he said it pretty sheepishly, and then he asked me how many I had, and he felt very sore for me that I hadn't been blessed by God with more children. And, and then the other man said to him, tell him that I have 23 in Arabic. <laughs> and so I had a discussion with him, and I, and I said, you, you're serious? And he wasn't too old. He might have been 45. And he said, yeah, 23. And he said, uh, some of them are here. The boys are here. So he stuck his head out the door and waved at these boys playing soccer out in the construction zone, and they all came running over there, and they filled the whole little room full of boys, and they're all his. <laughs> so in Gaza, you have a, a system where the people there love children, and they consider every child a gift from God, and uh, the loss of every child is a disaster to them, and they can only look to God for consolation. Whereas in Israel, you have uh, a society that has abortion on demand paid for by the state in the military, 
It's super free. It's epidemic there among the women who serve in the military. And out of all this, you end up with a death culture who uh, are not only conditioned to death, but they're conditioned to even killing their own children if it suits them. And one example of how this works is that a recent Israeli sniper uh, disclosed on his Facebook page that he had killed 12 Gazan children in one day. And he had a sniper rifle, and he just did it, and he boasted about it. So this is why our paper is talking about a death culture as opposed to a life culture. Those are really horrifying facts when you think about it. And at the same time, you know, I, you can see some comparisons between that state of affairs and, and some even here in the U.S., with abortion and uh, eugenics, et cetera. So they seem to have some common origins. I do know that those who were involved in the earlier eugenics movement were associated with Zionism. And so this may be all a part of the same uh, schemes. Well, that is an interesting angle. And it's certainly true that our own society is, uh, is, is not one to criticize. And uh, you can't help but uh, uh, but admire the Gazans when you do meet them. And, of course, people don't have that opportunity. The other issue is what does Israel do? What does the death culture do to convince Americans that they are the offended ones and what they're doing is righteous and noble and proper? And, of course, uh, from the very start, the answer to all of this has been largely wrapped up in two or three points, but the key, the most common point, is that Palestinians fire rockets into Israel all the time, and they keep Israel in a state of fear. And a few people have observed, not very many, on the news that these rockets rarely kill anybody. And in fact, they rarely do any damage at all. And uh, the thousands of rockets that have been fired have resulted in the death of three people on the Israeli side. One was actually a military guy, but he was in private uniform serving the military, and he, he was very close to Hamas, and he got hit by, a, 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 by a, some kind of a mortar round or something. One guy was a field hand who was from Southeast Asia uh, working in the fields, and he was hit by accident by one of these things that came down in a, in a, harmlessly in an in a open area, but he just happened to be unfortunately working there. And the third guy was uh, an Israeli, and I don't know the circumstances there. Uh, so with supposedly thousands of rockets fired during the whole period of this uh, conflict, this has been the total damage. There have also been no property damage reports. So the rocketry that the, the Gazan fire is sort of a political thing. Uh, the Hamas party is, of course, in power. Uh, they're supposed to try to show, do their best to show that they're defending and uh, that uh, and people expect uh, their, their government to try to defend them. And these rockets are pretty much either handmade or they're primitive World War II kind of stuff that is not uh, aimed. And what we've seen, of course, is a conscious effort by our media to transform these rockets into missiles. And the other night I was watching uh, uh, just one of the example, hundreds of examples. This happened to be the McLaughlin Report. And there's a man on it named Mort Zuckerman. Some of you have probably heard of him. 
He is one of the wealthiest men in America. He owns Business Week magazine. He owns the New York Daily Times. He's uh, fabulously wealthy, enormously educated, and from his background and record, Zuckerman uh, seems to be very smart. He's done incredibly well in school everywhere he's been. He's taught in both Yale and Harvard. And, and yet Zuckerman doesn't know that the Palestinians don't have missiles that are guided and aimed and controlled. He actually called their rockets missiles on the public program. And he is a radical Zionist. And I'm sure that he's smart enough to know the difference. Uh, but they simply do, by this uh, little slippery hand-in-mouth act, transform weapons that have no real military value into guided missiles, and then they simply ignore the question of how much damage they do. And uh, Zuckerman uh, talked about that on this program, and he had quite a rant on it. And uh, he talked about the number of missiles fired and how the, the Israelis live constantly in fear and spend all their time crawling into shelters and out of shelters, how disruptive it is to their life. And uh, we don't know that there aren't Israelis that go to air, air, air shelters, but if the enemy had been firing missiles for months and there was no reported damage, I think I would stop going to the shelter when I got the, when the alarm went off. So Israel, of course, has a, set up an alarm system to frighten people or to, uh, to make uh, the illusion that they're under attack. And in fact, uh, there is no attack really from Gaza of any kind. There is just is no weaponry at all. The point, of course, we're making here is not so much about the weaponry, but about how the complicity of people like Morton Zuckerman. And you can you can name every bit of the uh, American press. None of them have ever come out and, and said outright the Palestinians' weapons are so primitive that they do no damage. And yet that is really the case. This is one of the key things that's used to deceive the public about Israel's ongoing attacks. And all they have to do to start another attack on Gaza is, of course, announce that a rocket fell someplace. And there would be nothing stopping them from actually staging it, in fact. Well, plus people like Zuckerman can refer to the president. President Obama has called them missiles also. So it's a perpetuated myth. And the other interesting fact is people don't ask the question of, well, why do they do this? And we've gone into that, uh, answer that question in another podcast here. And so we've lost our capacity to critically think on these kinds of, of issues because we get so much content with very little or no context, uh, as I like to say, interrupted by beer commercials to enjoy the good life. Anyone else have any other questions or comments? Well, just one. A large part of the um, conditions that exist there uh, have to do with the way it's portrayed in the media. And, of course, as has been stated and indicated, you know, there is the suppression of the media and what happens is they present more of a one-sided story that uh, when these rockets are fired in, that this is the legitimate right, that they have the right to attack themselves. And so they paint the picture 
as though it's Israel that's being attacked and fail to see that it's the Palestinians who are being oppressed, whose land has been invaded, and they have the right to defend themselves. That's the story that they don't want told, that they try to basically just uh, stamp out in the in the media. And it, what seems to be a growing awareness based on a lot of the protests that are going around the world now, that people are finally waking up because of uh, seeing all these children, civilians, murdered, it's causing them to think. And once they start thinking and doing a little bit of research on their own, they find answers that they're not finding in the regular media. Tom? Yes, Leslie? It shouldn't be called a war at all. It should be called not just genocide, it's a terrorist The people have no say in the whole matter of, of defending themselves in this whole horrible situation. I wouldn't call it a war, but they deserve to pay for war crimes, uh, Israel does, for what they've done. Absolutely. Yes. By all yes. standards, it's war crimes, of course. Yes. I mean, there's some talk about it, but of course they always put in the caveat that uh, Hamas is may be subject to these war crimes also. So, well, We're not the only ones saying this. Henry Siegelman, who's a He's been quoted a lot. He's an older, older Jewish man, a very prominent Jewish man, and he's uh, referred to this as the slaughter of the innocent. And he specifically has stated that Hamas's rockets never seem to hit anything. And that is truly the case. And then the complicity of our government, of course, is spelled out in the latest act of our government. Uh, they have actually appropriated another... 200 and some million dollars to give to Israel to improve their missile system to shoot down these uh, these uh, rockets, which they call occasionally call missiles, which aren't missiles. And so we're actually funding more money to uh, fund a system that isn't even needed and doesn't do anything anyway, and has not can't even shoot these things down because they're so primitive. They don't go far enough to be shot down. In other words, now. And the other interesting thing that Henry Sigmund said, uh, and you can watch these on Democracy Now!, it's got two parts, is the fact when he talked about Hamas, he compared it with the Ergun and the Stern Gang. These were the two of the terrorist Zionist organizations. And he said, whereas Hamas shoots rockets that rarely kill anybody, the Stern Gangs and the Ergun were actually directed and shot people, as Chuck described in in uh, the ethnic cleansing and the scaring people to to leave the over 750,000 that were run out of what became Israel in 1948. Yeah, Tom, and I agree with that, and I don't. Even, but I don't even like that comparison because Hamas is made up of people like those two men I met in that shack. Yes, they have big families at home, and some of the biggest uh, killings, enormous killings of families, have been people who were suspected of being Hamas agents, and Israel simply bombed their house and killed them, and killed their wives, and killed all their kids in the process. And so, when you think about Hamas, you're thinking about a, a sort of a, a civilian army that's made up of volunteers that aren't, aren't even being paid, and mm -hmm. uh, and to make it uh, to make it more significant. Hamas is even elected. So anytime the question of Hamas comes up, I defend Hamas as the elected choice of these people. 
And uh, the thing you must ask yourself is when you see the Palestinians uh, out in the streets uh, picketing and protesting and throwing rocks, are they throwing rocks at Hamas's government buildings and, uh, and their own leaders, or are they throwing rocks at the police? And the answer is they're not. The, the, the people in Gaza may wish they had somebody else to govern them, but they do accept Hamas as the elected government there, and they are elected. So all criticism of Hamas is improper. It is their government. They have a right to whoever, whoever they do elect, and that's who they elected. Well, great. Thank you, everyone, for your input. Chuck, the, once again, always add some very interesting and cogent insights into what's going on. And we ask anyone listening, please pass this on if you've got any thinking friends left. Thanks for listening. If you like this program, please let your friends know about it and our other thought-provoking podcasts. And be sure to visit our website, whtt.org, for a wealth of information on Christian Zionism and other critical issues that we face. Also, at whtt.org, you can watch for free our award-winning documentary film, Christian Zionism, The Tragedy and the Turning, Part 1. Join us in our efforts to wake the town and tell the people. Start small, think big, and press on towards the straight gate.